Um, what is your name again? My name is Wes John mm-hmm. Chihos. That's right. Also pronounced Smith. Uh, J O H N H. Yes. J Christian spelling, baby. C I C C H. No, C I C. No, C H I S O Z C L H R E L. So there was a sale on consonants. Is what you're saying? I. <laughs> and that's funny. That's that's how it I'm is gonna, funny. That's I'm going to order my next pizza and <laughs> with using that without question. Yeah, sure is. Yeah. I have done that before. Just started just seeing how, how long it will take. Just <laughs> until they say yeah. L P Q you know, J uh, tired, one tired, five, yeah, nine, asterisk underscore <laughs> underscore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like to hold this pen because mm. it means that I'm serious. I take notes. I feel it as if I'm on a CNN level yes. podcast. Yes. yes. This yes. is a CNN level podcast. Mm-hmm. West? West? Uh, no T. And you, uh, and you know that. Wesh? Is it, is it, I thought there was like a silent H. From now on, at post-podcast, I want to be called Cheesen von Westenhausen. That makes complete sense to me. Yeah, I think it does. I think it just suits your... Mm. Sexually ambiguous sexually ambiguous state of mind yes it's, it's a state of mind it's not necessarily it's not necessarily what i do with the, my thing the gender that you were born with yeah but <laughs> my gen, my gender is multiculturalism it's chiho jean west hold on <clears throat> your name hold on is west yes chiho jean listen cheyenne bartrend yes that's me don't wear it out. I, uh, well, the, uh, it's worth mentioning this is our second attempt at this podcast, <laughs> and it's going about as well as the first one. <laughs> no, I am. I am. You're determined. I'm determined. I'm way more focused. Okay. I have been thinking about you all day, baby. No shit. Did you? Yeah. Did you dream about me last night? You were not in my dreams last night. Huh. Um, That's upsetting. But I did. I did make a uh, just like a rough paper mache likeness of you a voodoo kind of thing that no full size full scale huh. uh and it's it lives in my bedroom huh and so it is the last thing i see when i wake uh down wake down wake when i wake down and then when i wake up see that how that worked uh it's the first thing i see and it makes makes me feel something whole makes me feel whole okay um West John, if that is your real name, I doubt it is. Um, uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, man. I, I think we covered so much ground in that first five minutes that um, we're probably good. Yeah, I think we're good to go. I, I don't think so. Let's just we'll just. What else is there to know about me other than not much, honestly? Yeah. And I know you. I mean, I don't know you as well. Yeah, not a deep well. Not known for my depth. Yes. Yeah. I I feel like I know you as much as I want to. Yeah, well, the feeling is mutual. Oh, good. Well, around other podcast hosts, I feel shy and awkward. Okay, here but we go. But with you, it's okay, different. Okay. I feel I can talk to you. Wes John Chihos, Brian. you son of a bitch. Yes. What do you uh, want to know? I'm an open book. I want to know everything. I want to know, I want to know, uh, uh, you're growing up in Chicago. What music uh, do you remember from your childhood? Well, Ironically, the band Chicago was a huge influence because my dad was in a band called the Haymarket Riot, a very, very 
popular local band used to fill clubs and open for Shaka Khan and Sticks and that kind of stuff. So, mm. so the band Chicago Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan, Wang Chung. <laughs> okay, Sorry. yeah, no, everybody's Shaka Khan. I mean, it's Shaka Khan. It's known. It's so, all I want to do, uh, but everyone, let's Shaka Khan tonight, right? That's if you're not Wang Chunging, I recommend that you Shaka, Shaka Khan. Khan. Yes, okay. one or the other. That's that's crazy. So so okay okay. Yeah. So anyway, so so they played a lot of Chicago covers. Chicago was big, you know, that mm-hmm. first CTA album, and then the one after that, where just incredible horn arrangements. And uh, so my dad was, uh, you know, kind of a jazz rock guitar player, I guess, in this band, and uh, until I was about four years old. So in this band, the keyboard player Jimmy Spora was my godfather and I was kind of always at rehearsals and so I don't really remember a lot of that stuff but I think just all that music got in my head so mm-hmm. um but Steely Dan's greatest hits that that mm-hmm. uh, double album mm-hmm. was on a record player that my uncle John bought me in my room for my formative years that Sgt. Pepper's Revolver those were my mm-hmm. when I was six seven years old that was my shit mm-hmm. you know I mean like yeah just thought it was the most beautiful stuff ever yeah and that was my Guilty pleasure was running upstairs and just sitting and listening to that little record player, those those albums specifically. Pepper, yeah. Peppers, Revolver, Steely Dan's Greatest Hits. You wow. Know? We have, I think we have more in common uh, than you think. I know that you think that we're very different. We actually have a lot in common. Well, you're metric and I'm... Ceramic. Ceramic. Steely Dan Gold. Yeah. For me, uh, Sergeant Pepper... Uh, um, and then a bunch of the early Beatles shit. I, cu- I couldn't even tell you, but all right. So, all right. Yeah, the, well, the, those compilations, the, yes. the red one and the blue one. Yes. The two, those were my... Oh, the ones where yes. they're in the, in the stairwell? Yes, exactly, yes. yes. Yep, for me too. Yeah, the ones that are years, right? 68 through blah, 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 whatever. Yes, yeah. yep. Those in- are amazing. Incredibly formative records and didn't understand it, but yeah. something was appealing. Well, the subtle complexity, right? You know, yeah. I mean, all the music we're talking about... They're not just, uh, you know, like the way a Bob Dylan wrote a song, nothing against Bob Dylan, of course, but there's not really the arrangements that guide the words or that caress or surround the words in the way that the Beatles did or the way a Steely Dan does. Or, right. Or, you know. Well, I think, I think a lot of the bands that you just listed, like Chicago, Steely Dan, and even the Beatles, like Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, were starting to meld a bunch of stuff together mm-hmm. right you're you're listening to transitional music in a way it's like there was rock you know late 60s uh there's singer songwriter uh psychedelic use of jazz harmony also jazz harmony yeah. yep and and form and you're you know you just listed some records that were starting to blend all that stuff together yes so that must that must inform what you do now. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just their ability to write parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, you think about the horn parts in like a Chicago song, like a Saturday in the park, it's like, and how well they match the vocal mm-hmm. and how that, well they surround everything and don't, nothing steps on anything else. Mm-hmm. It's like everything has its place, you know? And that speaks to the work ethic in my mind during that time of music. Not to say that there isn't a band or bands that, still have work ethic, you know, but um, it seemed like back then there was really something special about the time they took to arrange things mm-hmm. just so. And mm-hmm. I definitely absorbed that work ethic from that music, and I think you can hear it on my album, 
my the two albums I have out, Moon Threads a Needle and Mass, you'll mm-hmm. hear that kind of thinking. That, mm-hmm. You know, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. And I've heard a bunch of stuff from those records, and and um, arrangement is obviously very important. Mm-hmm. Um, form, right? Form, uh, arrangement, instrumentation, uh, dynamic. You know, all you know, and that's the stuff that I take seriously too. Well, and you have an emotional connection in to your voice that I don't have which I'm actively jealous of and, and not actively like in a disparaging way, but I just think that like when I hear you do your thing, that's something I wish I had and aspire to have. But what I don't have in my emotional connection to my voice, I, I try and make up for in form and creativity mm-hmm. of part writing and, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, so, you know, you take what you have and you, you do what you do and you do the best you can. And that's what I've tried to do, you know? Well, I think you fucking did it. And we're going to hear a song uh, from you in a, in a minute. But, um, all right, so we know the records that we're spinning uh, in, in, in the Chihos uh, household. Let's fast forward. Um, can you talk uh, about, you know, kind of the, the, the high school, college years of being in Chicago and what that looked like for you? Sure. Um, well, you know, it's it's a fairly interesting story the way I started playing saxophone and saxophone was really my first instrument that I worked professionally on. I was always a, you know young, as a kid concert bands clarinet that kind of stuff always liked the reeds you know. But uh, I was in concert band and uh, we were playing Pachelbel's Canon and I started uh, improvising over it you know just because I was I was bored in the parts you know I was playing a, a bass instrument right so it was just a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of whole notes and that was boring so. I started to solo, and the uh, the band director Ron Holloman, who is just an incredible guy, and we became great friends. As a, even at that age, you know, we used to hang out, and he was a smoker, and a, we used to hang out and smoke, and outside the high school together. Which I don't know how, what other teachers thought of that, but he actually tried to sneak me into the teachers' lounge occasionally so I could have a smoke <laughs> with him there too. Just a really sweet and bright guy from you know University of Iowa, doctorate, blah blah blah. Um, and so he heard me doing that, and he, he gave me a tenor saxophone from the school's locker, and uh, I was first tenor in the jazz band the following year. You know, okay. I just it just felt real natural in my hands. It was like, and saxophone to me, I guess maybe it's something to do with it's one note at a time, or maybe it has something to do with your breath, but it just was so intuitive. I felt like I got it really, really quick. And not to say that, you know, I'm not a giant steps player, I'm not a, but I have an emotional connection to how that instrument works, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and certainly I'm not the sax player I was when I was young. I was practicing five hours a day and really after it and mm-hmm. in a lot of bands. But um, I have a technical question for you. Yes, sir. What is the relation to the fingering of a clarinet to the fingering of a tenor? Well, they're almost identical. Oh. But uh, there's what they call the... Uh, well, the bridge or the break in a, on a clarinet where there's some palm keys. So, so basically, when you hit the quote-unquote octave key on a saxophone, you get an octave, you know, mm-hmm. whereas you do it on a clarinet, you get a 13th. So, so it's like a, it's a different thing. So, so really, you're, on clarinet, you have to think in two positions, you know. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's a different thing. And I'm not much of a clarinetist. I, I don't mean to imply that I still have those skills, you know. But I, I do play parts on records and still like to pick it up every now and again, you know. But but it was close enough to make that oh, transition. Absolutely. It, saxophone is, I find it to be infinitely easier than clarinet, and it's okay. kind of known for that, you know. Huh. I mean, all the notes are in order. Hit the button on the back, you get an octave. Okay. You know, it's really... So the jump wasn't huge. 
it was, but it, but, yeah. but but the, but, 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 but what it felt for you emotionally. Was well, well, because the saxophone is a more well, it was culturally irrelevant then, right? It, saxophone was a huge thing in the '80s when I was in high school. You know, not a tenor like, though. Uh, uh, more of a soprano. Ten, no, I was a tenor. Alto? I was a tenor player the whole the whole time. Tenor. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like tenor wasn't big, but alto was big in the Ten, '80s. Tenor was big too. No, really? Were, yeah, Clarence Clemens and all that Bruce Springsteen oh, stuff. And that I was mean, tenor. Yeah, that was. Tenor. I always thought that was alto. No, no, no. That's somehow racist that you thought that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, no. <laughs> Clarence is rolling over in his grave right now. Yeah, alto I'm, playing Clarence Clemens. Sorry, no, it's okay. But David but like, San, um, Sanborn, yeah. uh, Huey Lewis, uh, Men at Work. I thought those were all altos. Those are tenors. Yeah, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you, my bad. Get your shit together, pal. Okay, sorry, baby. I, no, but there was there was a lot of alto too. David Sanborn was a huge you know, pop jazz icon back then. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he had, a, well, you remember the show, right? Night music. Have you ever seen his television show from the eighties? I, us uh, incredible music, you know, really incredible music. And you, you would have people like, you know, any famous jazz musicians, uh, Freddie Hubbard sting, you know, yeah. just people that, uh, if you get a chance, YouTube night music. Will. Yeah, I will. Um, was that connected at all to Knight Rider? Because that's what I, I know that. Uh, yes. Well, it, it, if it's not, it is now, you know. <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like David Hasselhoff, I, if... You got a Hasselhoffy vibe going on, I think. A little Maybe. Bit. A little bit. I mean, you've said some nice things to me in the past. But that tops them all. But that tops it all. Yeah. And um, that's kind of what I'm going for. <laughs> well, okay. Well, mission accomplished, <laughs> Mission pal. accomplished. Um, okay. So... High school, uh, college, um, college. I had a f- got ended up getting after my first attempt of my first year of college was uh, I didn't really go to class. I was kind of I was down at Southern Illinois University and you know was messing around with a little bit of the uh, LSD and uh, uh-huh. just kind of not really adulting well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. then I uh, first time away from home. First time away from home. Yeah. Wow, well, not really. Home. I actually moved out of my parents' house when I was 15, living in friends' basements and kind of moving around, working at a grocery store to kind of pay the bills. But, uh, you know, turbulent childhood, yeah. you know, very... Yeah. Sounds like it. Semi-abusive parents moved out very early, you know, but... Um, and rightfully so, but uh, I don't want to get too into that. But, yeah. But I ended up getting a full ride to University of Illinois at Chicago uh, on saxophone and uh, went for two years and then... Started to network, um, which is a term I didn't know back then. But and I realized all these gigs I was playing, I was playing with people that had, that had people that had masters and doctorates from DePaul or Northwestern, and I was making the same money or more. And I thought to myself, well, why am I spending my time getting right. this degree when this is obviously it's a profession where if you can do, right, if you can do it, you can do it. You know, and you can get that gig regardless of what paper you have. That exactly. Says that you learned whatever. Exactly. And also, I've come to find that most people in Chicago, for whatever reason, they assume that I was a DePaul guy. Like, no which is kind of, yeah, they just like they're like, well, you went to DePaul, right? Because well, I because I hung with all those guys. You know? But it's also a similar thing to like Massachusetts musicians. You say, oh, did you? Oh, were you a Berkeley cat? Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, same I, deal. Yeah, so. But uh, I always I, I'm highly flattered by that. I mean, I do have some miss some holes in my theory knowledge, although not many. Uh, I went through the process of learning to read music proficiently on saxophone. So I didn't go to college for guitar, and I'm primarily a guitar player. So sometimes there'll be a piece of music put in front of me that I'm like, oh fuck, what is this? You know. But be, but ultimately because because you can't read the chart. Or no, I can read the chart. It's just yeah. that I I I never spent my 
five hours a day reading guitar music. I spent okay. my five hours a day in playing my in my, promo, in my embryonic right. phases playing saxophone. Yeah, right, right. but um, at the same time, I'm able to hear the music by looking at it. You know, I right. mean, for the most part, you know, right. Um, so it's not that big a challenge. Uh, but um, but still, I not nearly as good as uh, as someone that would have spent those four years studying guitar specifically. Sure. You know, but yeah, I do. I am a hard worker and a and a hard practicer and and love love it still love music like genuinely like yeah. just feel just it resonates with me it's in my mind all the time it's yeah. like a it's my significant other you know right that's always with me you know interesting yeah which is why i don't get laid <laughs> it's not funny it's sad i'm in this new town all by myself yeah just so lonely i have an extra bedroom <laughs> but no one's in it <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. If that was the thing, I want my significant other to, to have, her own, have her own bedroom. Yes. Yeah, okay. Just get out of my fucking way, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, come in. Come in. And hang. we'll watch a movie, and then it's like Netflix and chill. But then go to bed uh, out away. Well, I don't want to hear her talk about my snoring. Uh, it's like yes. yes, I snore, and that's my business, not yours. You right. Know? Yeah. Get over it. Get over it, and, and get and out. get out. Get out. Yeah. But not no, whatever. Not yeah. in a, not an angry. Way. No, just in a in okay. a pra pragmatic. Yes. Get out. Let's in a uh, practical. <laughs> We're gonna take a break. We are. You're already a little ornery, I'm, but this is what I love about yeah, you. Yeah, making me angry. And you're. I'm ornery. You're pointing at me as you. I. You're I pointing I, me. I have like, uh, weapons. Yes. Yes. I have weapons. You're if you defy me, then, I. I will. I will poke you right in your eye. I will poke you in the eye. So I want you to oh. stay sharp for the second <laughs> half of this fucking thing. All right. Am I allowed to have a drink on this break? Um, um, uh, what I'm asking is, am I articulate enough at this point? Oh, yes, baby. You're very, it's, okay. Everything's flowing. Everything's nice. God's will. You look like shit, but everything, <laughs> you sound like great. I do. I feel like shit. You got a voice for radio, baby. Taking a break. Okay. Shout out to Santan Brewing Company. They sponsor this podcast. They gave me a bunch of incredible beers to try, and in my hand is Pebblehead Stony, Stony, Hazy IPA. Everybody knows I love a good IPA. The whole town knows about it. I celebrate it. You guys, paradise awaits with this head-spinning blend of tropical tang and flavorful fruits. Pebblehead Stony Hazy IPA. It astounds the senses. I mean, when was the last time that happened to you? It has tart flavors of stone fruit, tangerine, passion fruit. It's the perfect balance of sweet and sour. Get yourself some. Santanbrewing.com, y'all. That's all. Just go there. Um, cheers, Wes. Here's to you, bro. Good to see you, baby. You too, man. It's always a good time. You're a handsome man doing handsome things. <laughs> handsome things. <laughs> handsome things. That's a good album title. Don't. It's mine. Uh, I'll, uh, we'll roast no, no, for it's it. A do, it's a duo record. It's a duo. Oh, it's yeah. Handsome things. Dude, I do have a song that I think you should, of the, that I wrote that you should sing. Um, and I know I've mentioned it to you before, but I really want you to uh, take a listen to it. I got to send it to you. Talk to my lawyer. To your copyright lawyer. All right, yeah. fine. Jesus. Yeah, you've got movies out and shit. Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, kind of a big deal. Okay, um, <laughs> but back to you. Um, Enough about me. Let's talk about me. From the few regular straight jobs I had in high school and 
shortly after college, I realized that I hate going to the same place every day. Like even if I were a, if I were a college professor, for example, it would drive me nuts to go to the same office, deal with the same people every day. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason that, uh, aside from music constantly cycling through my head, in other words, I look at a painting or look at a car or move a steering wheel or move my left foot. It, it almost has a musical component to it. Mm -hmm. My brain just thinks mm -hmm. that way, you know? Um, it's, it's funny that you say that. Um, shut your mouth for one second. Oh, boy. <laughs> shut your mouth for one second. I can't wait to do this podcast again. <laughs> Ritual Abuse with Brian Chartrand. <laughs> when I turn on the blinker in the car. Yes. Oh, you're grooving. I'm grooving. Yeah, it's serious. I'm I'm creating the next Radiohead single. You know, with, uh, with the blinker, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? Most cars, the left foot, especially the older older cars, the left foot where there's that pad for your, yes. your foot to sit, has an incredible kick drum sound. Is that right? Because it resonates in the wheel well. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Whatever. That's, yeah. that's a white beatbox sound. It sounded... Clicky. Is it we're, I'll, I'm gonna. I'll. Don't worry. I'll yeah, um, EQ yeah. it. I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. add some low end. And press and, that shit. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And I, you know, I start to hear rhythms and stuff. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's funny that you say that. You know, when you're in the car or whatever, it's that blinker. So or whatever it is. So you know, there was a. Uh, there's a well. It was a famous bar. It, it was shut down, wrongly shut down by the city of Chicago. Actually, they were forced out. But there was a place called Marie's Riptide, and an incredible bar that centrally located in Chicago. You know, and uh, after gigs, that would be my place to stop off. Sometimes they'd have music, but um, a lot of the Second City cats would hang out there. Conan O'Brien would come by. No when shit, he was, when he was in town. Yeah. I anyway, love I, I got Conan to be. He's great. He's incredible. I got to be friends with uh, the owner, Marie. Uh, who was 96 years old, still wandered around doing shots with everyone in the bar, oh and just God. and she eventually died. Uh, and her daughter, I got to be friends with her, and they gave me on the, their last night. They gave me the photo of Marie from behind the bar, and it's now in my no, way. it's in my van. Yeah, so I have a piece of Chicago history. Uh, that's that's awesome. real. But anyway, they had this this vent fan in the bathroom in the men's room that was broken. Yeah. And I swear to God, after gigs, it was one of my favorite things to do. Was to, I always look forward to taking a leak in that place because it was just great to riff against that drone. It right. Was like it was right. Like, you would harmonize. Yes. And do it, exactly. Do things. It was like yeah. an Indian dance party while yes. urinating. You know. <laughs> you know? Penis in hand, no less. <laughs> Dance party. That might be the name of the of this particular episode of the podcast. Indian <laughs> dance well, party. Well, Chihos, who knows? That could be. Do they do consonants like that over there? I don't know. I don't know. So, all right. So, two and a half years, and you and you decide to become a full time musician. Well, it's not so much that I decided. It. My life kind of went that way. It just started getting calls, and I think what really. You know, the idea of making money at music always seemed like fiction to me at those ages. Yes. But um, I got, I'm sorry. This is what, 2021? Yes. Okay. I got a call from uh, the saxophone professor who is now a good friend of mine, uh, Peter Ballon, uh, the saxophone professor at DePaul. And he heard me playing on this record with this band called Uptidy. And I had this long solo and it was a good one, you know. And um, and he said, hey, man, I... Uh, I have this gig. I can't make the first half of it, but it's with Miles. Most of the band members were Miles Davis's Amandala band, you know, Richard Patterson, Bobby Irving, you know, um, all these, his touring band and some of his, anyway. So, um, and I, you're like, 
I'm fucking 20 years old. You're like, like, wait, sorry, like, like, you're like, hold on. Who's Miles Davis? Well, yeah, I, I hadn't heard of him. Hadn't heard point. of him. Yeah, yeah. Because he hadn't know. done much. I was like, he's not, is he the guy on Sgt. Peppers? Right. On, you know. The Peppers. He plays the, uh, the flugel. The, the uh, little pocket trumpet. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, whatever that is. Um. Anyway, so, um, so I ended up playing this gig and, and, uh, and doing well, and he came and played the second half, and we played it together. And uh, from that point, Steve Gillis, who's now a good friend of mine also and has been for many years, who owns a very successful studio in, in Chicago and was also the drummer in the band Filter Tour, and oh, he's wow. in the videos and yeah. stuff and all that. Um, he, uh, he called me to be in this band called Swimmer, which was like a funk band with my good friend Nicholas Barron, an incredible visual artist and uh, an incredible musician, like solo acoustic and... Uh, in many different formats. He's just a brilliant guy and a good friend. So I ended up playing in this band, and we kind of got semi-famous. You're, are you laughing at something? I, something is happening. There's nipple. Oh, jeez. There's nipple yeah. in the window. Anyway, and uh, that's, I'm burying my soul, and you're you're laughing. Know, I, you're laughing at nipples. No, I'm not. I'm not okay. laughing. I'm. Yeah. I'm. I think we need. There's. This is an ethical issue that we can discuss off microphone. But uh, I want you to continue to bury your soul. Just, just don't bury your nipples. There's okay. going to be a reprimand okay. <laughs> later for this. No, I'm. But anyway, so I ended up in this band, Swimmer, um, that. Uh, Played at the Elbow Room every Thursday, and, you know, we got kind of big. You know, we would open for Smashing Pumpkins. for No shit. Oh, yeah. We're all sorts of people. Bro, you know? We just, opened for Maceo, Maceo Parker. Uh, and, you know, we were like, you know, Chicago scene darlings, you know. I was just a sax player. I wasn't really a front. I wasn't a guitar player I'm professionally sorry, at that point. But I have, I, hold on. I have a thousand fucking questions for you because... How does one band open for Maceo Parker and Smashing Pumpkins? It was, it's a really eclectic, incredible band. A, Apparently. So if, if anyone wants to look up Swimmer, which later we were forced to change our name to MVP because there was a copyright issue with Swimmer. But is anyway. That, is that Swimmer with three M's or four? <laughs> Unfortunately, only. only <laughs> uh, just just two. As far oh, as just I know. two? Oh. But there was another band uh, uh, out of the East Coast that had the copyright and blah, blah, blah. You know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, was, I wasn't really in upper management in that band, but I enjoyed the hell out of playing. And also I was playing... Uh, a horn next to uh, Pevin Everett, who is a musical genius, a trumpet player and guitar player, writer. Uh, uh, but he was one, he was in Betty Carter's band when he was 14, and he ended up in the Lincoln Center Jazz Band with Winton when he was 16 or 17, I think. And then now he's with Gorillaz. You know, he's a, a wow. full member of Gorillaz. And wow. anyway, so he some heavy hitting motherfuckers in that band. Clearly, yeah, and so. I don't know, man. From there, it was like I was so people would come out and hear us and hear me, and I and my phone was just ringing off the hook when I was in my twenties for for like funk, jazz, saxophone stuff. I, you know? have, I have too many questions. Yeah. Did you meet Billy Corrigan? No, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. Shut your mouth. <laughs> did you meet Darcy? Uh, I did, but it wasn't like we didn't. It wasn't a connection. It was just like, oh, hello, you know, kind of thing. Because okay. I used to hang out at this bar called the Blue Note when it was uh, on Armitage and I didn't meet them opening for them. Although I, we were in, we had green rooms across from each other. So right. I saw them, but I'm, I met Billy Corgan. His he used to park his Land Rover out front of the blue note. And that's how you would know Billy was there. And I was driving a cab for a company called American United, stopping off playing gigs in the middle of my shifts. No you know, shit. I was driving 5 PM to 5 AM, you know, making good money. Uh, and while playing, you were gigging, while I was gigging. So you stop off, you play a gig and then you get out and you make your money and pay your rent and whatever the fuck, you know, but, um, and I was turned on to the cab driving thing by my saxophone teacher at the time, Ed Peterson, who is now t is head 
of the jazz program at the University of New Orleans. But he's the best sax player ever to exist. I mean, there's no, I can't see technically how anyone could possibly. Ed he, Peterson. He, Ed Peterson. He was in Kurt Elling's band, and he's on Kurt Elling's first couple of records. And anyway, so he was like, dude, if you need some money, uh, driving a cab is, all, is, is a way to do it. He's like, I did it when I was starting out, and no shame in it, you know, so. Um, is it the same in New York where you have to get like the medallion? Well, the, the company needs to own the medallion. But, the but company at, owns the medallion. Yes, the company owns the medallion. And the medallions at the time were worth about $250,000. Right. Now when Uber came in, now medallions are worth shit. So all, right. these, all these people having invested, is it's a shame. But um, and, and actually is ethically wrong, aside from whatever policy they decided you know, Uber and Lyft were allowed to do. And I, I drove Uber and Lyft January, February, March when I had kids. If, if, I had lo if my gigs went down, right. I, you got to pay the mortgage, right? right. You know, so I, I, I have a history of driving for money because you have your mind to yourself still. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can put on whatever sure. podcast, whatever music yeah. you want and it's uh it's a beautiful thing and no there's no shame in that at all uh, you know it's like i'm a musician but if i need money i need money you know yeah i'll get it you know sucking dick no i'm kidding I <laughs> I i've never had one in my mouth i, I, I would i around if it, i if i were to have one in my mouth i would prefer it be mine <laughs> but yeah. isn't that why and I, you removed multiple yeah. ribs <laughs> yeah that's that that's uh that, that's a rumor going around town and it's it's not true you know um I don't know. I've I've seen an X-ray of you of your torso. <laughs> yes, I had last time when you passed out on my couch. I X-rayed you with my iPhone app. Yeah. But you can't see that you know me well. Back in a day when we were friends, I haven't seen him for a year or so. Literally last night, I get home and I put on Siamese Dream. It's a great album. It's a great album. I put on Siamese Dream, and then I put on Gish. Gish was the record before that. Yes. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I, I know that album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I had this, you know, I'm always thinking about records that I want to do, you know? Yeah. And I was like, I started texting friends. I was like, do you know Siamese Dream? Can we do Siamese Dream? Yeah. I want to be a part of that. Today is the greatest, man. That that song? That song is actually not my favorite from that record. I know it's not my favorite, but it's it's a it's a good it's one. It's a great it's fucking a great song. song. Yeah. And he's fantastic live. I mean, I remember I never bought a ticket, but I, I think we opened for him twice. Maybe three times because what year was this? The cab Cabaret Metro really liked Swimmer, and I can't really take credit for Swimmer. It's I was in the band. You were in the band. I, yeah, I was in the sure. band, but I was not management level. Right. I wasn't the t you know the yeah. You, know, you were the hard gun. I was the well. I mean, I was in the band proper, but it no, was, no. You were the dancer. I, I wish I could dance. I actually really do wish I could dance. Yeah, you know? but mm -hmm. um, I don't. I like to move to music. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. But uh, Billy Corgan, when he's got that strat in his hand and he's he's giving it to you, he's giving you all he's got. You know, and it's it's really it's that a hell band. Of a thing. Jimmy Chamberlain. I've played with Jimmy Chamberlain before. Is that actually. right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Because he, he's a jazz. He's a consecrated jazz drummer. Also, you know, I mean, what? He's, he's got his shit is together. Yeah, I, I what club? I played at a club in Logan Square with Jimmy Chamberlain. Yeah, he's a sweet guy too. You know. Yeah, well, and too also, many secrets, Wes. You no, know, these aren't secrets. I mean, yeah. also the last apartment I had there every year, um, the neighborhood Edgewater has this big like neighborhood wide yard sale where everyone just all the shit you want to sell, just bring it out in the street. And James Eha's yes house in Edgewater, the one he lived at when Smashing Pumpkins were starting out. He and Darcy lived there apparently, but there was this, this, this there's two 
massive like paintings, one of James Eha and one of Darcy that they actually have for sale and on display in, no in, at this yard sale. And I was like, I don't have, you know, whatever, $2,000 to buy either one of them. And actually, I'm not such a fanatic fan that I would want either of their faces on my wall. I know? wouldn't want that either, no. but I just, th- those records uh, totally yeah. f- fucked me up in the greatest well, way possible. Well, and I, I don't know who the producer was, but I actually, in Chicago, I... I got to meet and, and record with Steve Albini and we were the only two people in wow. the studio at the time at, at, at his electric audio. I re- had recorded there a bunch, but when my last album came out, Moon Threads and Needle, I got uh, a lot of, a lot of media attention, you know, for me, you know, and obviously you can see on Spotify that I haven't had that many listens, but Chicago was like, Hey, who the fuck is this guy? And why is he all over the place and all these videos? And I actually hired a publicist to uh, promote the record. And anyway, it it worked. So I ended up getting a session from, uh, another sax teacher of mine where I, I got to play on Kim Deal's new record, which I haven't heard Mm -hmm. um, from the Pixies. And, uh, Mm -hmm. I also played on, uh, yeah, I ended up getting a call to play on Daryl Jones's solo album from the rolling stones you know so i'm i'm in there playing tenor and, wow. cla- and clarinet actually <clears throat> badly you know it's just kind of so kind of a big deal is what you're no i mean I, I i don't think so i think uh, my the, I, for some reason i came out as a singer songwriter with this album that had a bunch of heavy shit where i was playing saxophone and playing all the bass parts and writing all this kind of intricate interesting yet still accessible shit that was acoustic guitar based and mm. and that somehow translated to me to my uh, access to the upper echelons as well let's hire him as a sax player and it was like that was kind of weird to me because i you know mm-hmm. also i i did a short tour with umphreys mcgee no shit on saxophone after i'd already kind of transitioned into the guitar player singer role and so my friend eric levy who is uh, a full-time member of night night ranger uh eric levy is an incredibly talented guy and we lived we lived in one of my dad's buildings actually together. He rented the back coach house and, and I had my young kids and wife in the uh, first floor. And, and so Eric Levy uh, called Humphreys McGeek and said, hey, this guy, he kind of described the sax player I was maybe four, four or five years before. And he said, you should try this guy out. And, uh, and they did. And there's a, bo- there's a bootleg you can still order. I mean, I have the CD of me playing you know, <clears throat> you, went, you went on tour with them, or you? No, it was a short. The they fl- they flew me out, or I flew out. I wouldn't say they flew me out, but I flew out and did a crystal ballroom with them, Portland in Portland, yeah. and did a, a couple other joints. I was there for like three, four days. You know, so it's I shouldn't say short tour, but it, but um, and they were not very receptive to me being there. It was almost like Eric kind of wedged me in. But I'm old friends with uh, with other people that are you know Chris Myers from. Uh, Umphreys is an old friend of mine and he used to play he has a photographic memory and my band the e-mics which is the precursor to uh my solo work uh he used to be able to memorize all the material and he would come in and play whenever my regular drummer Dan Leali who has played with Fareed Hawk and whatever everyone's consecrated you know badass motherfuckers you know um yeah so Chris Myers from Umphreys McGee before he, he was in Umphreys McGee before they existed he used to come and play my original music and he loved it he was a fan like i would go i went to their house his house and he had my e-mics bumper stickers and i was marketing the band i used to i used to take lighters buy lighters in bulk at uh sam's club uh and uh i used to put labels on them that said e-mics you know that had Uh our our little you know Uh and and i give them to all the clubs that we played and so um and all the clubs so everyone had 
an Emix lighter. It was hilarious. <laughs> Everywhere I went, I'd be like, I was like, hey, that's my lighter. Guerrilla marketing. No, it was. Actually, I had this idea that I wanted to buy a bunch of wet wipes, put them in all the bar, in the bar bathrooms that said, uh-huh. I have the li- last wipe on the Emics, you know, oh. a bunch of, but they, I did never did that because that was a little too much, you know. <laughs> right? It's like, you don't want, you don't want, well, I guess a clean asshole associated hey, with your band is all right. You it's know? fine. It's good. I was guerrilla marketing back then. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So G O R R I L L, J O R R, not G E U. I see. Not G U E. Okay, got you. Um. All right, and let's fast forward to coming to Phoenix, or is there more? I mean, bro, I could go. I could go for a while, but but it's worth talking. You know, I've always kind of been an, an adventure adventurer at heart and i kind of i was married for 20 years and and was happy for some of it but really it was a strange my ex is i i don't want to disparage her publicly but it's it was not a good match it wasn't happening it wasn't happening yeah yeah so um so after finally deciding that the kids were old enough for the for them to weather the divorce Mm -hmm. um uh you know i i kind of I kind of wanted my life back. What it, mm-hmm. the track I was on from age twenty to twenty-seven before I ended up on a more stereotypical, step, stereotypically American track, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so the adventure began, mm-hmm. and boy, did it begin! You know, I just mm-hmm. started making connections. I was out more and meeting more musicians, playing more, getting better in Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, so the adventure. Had been going so well, and I and uh, my career, you know, financially in Chicago, I was doing really, really well, and living in on a, a building that had a view of the skyline and a private beach with, you know, f- the building was filled with artists and scientists, and and uh, and so socially was fantastic as well. And my landlord was uh, also an incredible songwriter. Uh, David Sherman uh, has a band called the Steakhouse Mints. If you look Spotify, the Steakhouse Mints, you would mm-hmm. love this shit. He's really? a brilliant guy. So we would just hang out and play all the time. And yeah, I can't say enough about him and his wife, uh, Jennifer, you know, so we'd all just hang out and play on the patio and there was a party, you know, all the time. And I would bring people home after gigs and we'd skinny dip, you know, and sounds terrible. It was a hell of a thing. It's strange to have given that up, but you know, it was moving out here was an act of faith. And, uh, and, uh, in other words, it wasn't so much, uh, cocky meaning that like, well, if I can do this here, I can do it anywhere. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing, but there was something calling me here. And really what called me here was the connection I felt with Shay initially, you know, um, a really special, talented guy um, who I learned a lot from. So you you knew him before you moved out? No, I only knew him from a couple phone conversations where mm-hmm. he's like, we have work, and uh, if you want to come out. Oh, that's right, because you were leading Lucky Devils in Chicago. The equivalent, which they call right. the Blue Water Kings, yeah. Okay. So so I thought, if I, you know, I want to avoid winter, and I want to avoid... Um, the drought of Chicago music is January, February, March. There's just right. nowhere to play. It's right. horrible which, outside. Which is when we're blown up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I thought, well, why the fuck not do this? You yeah. know. But then I, you know, I met uh, this weird uh, bass player named uh, Sean Brogan, oh. also who used to let me crash at his place. You know, when I was in town. Or, Strangest. Yeah, and just it, uh, really. Yeah, he smells interesting, it's, doesn't it's, he? It's, it's not bad. It's just. It's not bad. It's, but it, it, it smacks of. Um, Old tacos. It's it's like it's like a scrotum dipped in, in vinegar. Guacamole. Guacamole, maybe. Like a vinegary guacamole. A vine- yeah, you something know, like that. I, I get that. Yeah, I get that. But, I, but I, the scrotum is the primary smell. Achoo! 
Oh, Sean. Oh, Sean's here. I didn't here. realize you were here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they did. Um, anyway, but no, man, everyone I met here was like, see, in Chicago, like in my age group, or rather, it, I was in multiple scenes doing multiple things, right? So I had a little, so I know the jazz guys, I know the singer-songwriter guys, I know the... You know, the guys in the burbs, the guys in the, whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. I really had been there so long. It was like, and it's not like I got bored of it by any stretch. I mean, it's the the quality of musicians in Chicago and the quality of their personalities. I mean, they're just such sweet people, and I miss them yeah. all. And dear friends, like, that I can't wait to see when I go back. I mean, yeah. I love these people. Um, yeah. But, um, but there is, like, people... They get put in camps, and then you get called by the same people again. In other words, my life was becoming samey. Like I knew that I, if I stayed there, my life would have had a sameness that I, I didn't want. So I mm -hmm. took the risk of coming out here, and then met you, met Shay, met Sean, met Steve Himmelstein, met a lot of people that you've done mm -hmm. the podcast with, and I just felt like these are people that engage the world in the way that I want to. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, we're going down to Mexico. We're fucking throwing caution to the wind. We're doing this. We're also, tonight we're doing this. We're checking out this place. We're going, I mean, just mm -hmm. the way they engage the world and invite me to join. I'm like, right. fuck. Right. Yeah, I mean, Chicago was, wasn't quite like that for me. I mean, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Not to say I was starved of friendships. I mean, I, uh, whatever. I did. I've well, done, you know. But 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 you know, leaving leaving a place, leaving a city, gives you new perspective on what you had. You know. Yes. But also, if you have like a like a traveler's heart, um, you know that you will find, as you say, you'll find your tribe yep. in any city that you go to. Well, music. That's that's the beautiful thing about being a musician. It's like. Mm -hmm. We are a species, you know, even when there's a language barrier, uh, I still, f you can just see in their eyes that they're one of you, you right, know, you right, know, right. and certainly you can feel they're one of you when, when you hear them play, if they mm -hmm. display what it is that, you yeah. know, yep. it's a, you know, I, I, I'm reluctant to use the word lifestyle, but it's, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of thinking that, mm -hmm. that music yes. brings you to that, you know, the, the truth of it is kind of undeniable but also you can't really put your you finger can't, on it you can't yeah. you can't get a metric a metric representation of what that is you know right but um right do you need one you know right i don't i don't but thank you i'd like one um <laughs> <laughs> taking a break gonna make a snack kick fucking ass motherfucker you got any cheese This house is early mornings, test my cool resolve When I wake up to a five foot fire, my fist goes through the wall But I don't know how I could ever change this If this is a lie, I'm gonna have to jump the train And everybody says, hey, don't have that conversation Hey, this is a holy nation I, I was one of them. 
<laughs> our first our first attempt, right? I think I was That's in two or three, yeah. Um all right, so let's talk about let's talk about your song. About my what? About your song. The one song I've written. You have more? <laughs> no, it's taken me forty nine years to write that one song. And I'm sticking by it. Well, can we talk about it for for a moment? Yes, of course, of course. Jesus. Let's talk about it, yeah. Why am I, it's always, it's always p- pulling teeth with you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the defensive. You're it's called... It's called... Every, s- somebody said something. Somebody said something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nobody says nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. Hypodermic, hypodermically speaking. Uh, everybody says. Now, we just listened to it. Yes. It's a very sexy song. And I do want to point out one thing. You had the hay before the hay was hip. Yes. I recorded that song. And those are actually my my kids and their friends in mm-hmm. my attic studio. Mm-hmm. They happened to be over that day and I was like, Hey guys, I need some haze. That was before hey that was before Hey Ho and there was one other Hay song, but we actually recorded that before that shit yeah. happened. Um so I, I'm not taking credit for the haze. I think and, you should. Well, I have under a, a thousand listens on Spotify, to be honest with you, uh, for the song. So I, I, I can't take any credit for uh, Zeitgeisty, uh, you know. But whatever, haze were in the air in the uh, early 2000s, I guess, you know. Or no, that would have been early 2010s, yeah. <laughs> God's will. I just let you speak so we can, like, circle back on some shit. Okay. Um, can you tell me just a little bit about the tune? Yes. Uh, so, you know, it's a little bit lyrically, politically informed, but like any song, as you know, like it just starts with, uh, with a riff and the opening, the intro is very, uh, dissonant, right? You know, Mm. and it lasts quite some time, which is, uh, what I read and what I'm told is a recipe for not having a hit, which has been my goal to not make money and not be successful yet be artistically fulfilled to the best of my ability. Anyway, so there's a long dissonant intro and then it becomes this kind of, uh, that riff, that opening, I, that is actually, um, that stands up on its own on acoustic guitar. In other words, mm-hmm. there's a bass part and there's a simultaneously moving upper part that kind of counterpoints it, you know? So, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, when I recorded this, uh, I, I like the recording, but, um, it's really, as far as expressing the song, I didn't need to cover up the raw components. If I could go back in time and do it again, I would probably make it a little bit more raw. And I do have raw versions on YouTube. Uh, I don't know. You know this company so far, right? Um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I did. There's a version uh, of me doing that at a a pop-up in Chicago where it's a little bit more raw with some of my best musician friends and Mm -hmm. musicians that I've been working with for 20 years. And and you can kind of feel that we all know each other and that it's a little more raw because it's five instruments on on this recorded version. You know, I, I wanted to, uh, as the song progresses, I, I doubled my bass parts. I'm playing bass on it. I doubled my bass parts on Barry to kind of thicken it up, which is something that they used to do. Uh, I grew up watching television, right? And CBS, uh, whoever the staff arranger was there, and I should know his name. Uh, I've researched it before, but I can't recall his name. But um, that's one of his one of the things he does, you know? So it's almost like this tune is like, <laughs> is almost 
informed by television the way I approach the instruments, you know, hmm. clar- clarinets and and sax sections and and also the bridge is a radical departure from what the song was doing. It suddenly goes to a I, it's not a 12 bar blues, but it's a, a kind of a key shifting, you know, uh, feel. Um, anyway, um, I guess the, whoever listens to this will make their own assessment. But, um, you know, I, it wasn't my goal to showcase everything I could do on this recording, but I ended up kind of doing that involuntarily. And that artistically is doesn't quite sit right with me. But at the same time, you know, this album got a lot of attention and got me some kind of high profile gigs so i can't really uh complain you know does the way that you compose like do do you notice a difference in the way you compose from then and now um honestly i've been doing so little composition i mean i but at the same time every time i pick up the guitar i'm kind of composing which is a benefit and an asset you know i mean covid has really changed who I am, you know, I mean, just not having access to music for that long of a time or not being able to access it culturally and Mm -hmm. personally. Yeah. uh, I wouldn't say it damaged me, you know, I mean, I certainly have been moving forward, but, um, but not in the same way, you know, Mm -hmm. it's almost like, would you have written and produced that song the same way now? No. No, I, I I definitely don't think so. But is it is it from a song perspective, or is it from a production production aesthetic, or I, I think um, well, this is gonna I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass or anyone else's, but I think as as time goes on, it becomes it's I'm trying to make it less important to me that I fill every moment or fill every um, inch of the speaker's capacity to provide music is fundamentally information and that sounds very clinical but um but really there's a way to use the speaker or the headphone of the uh, empirical listener um in such a way that space is is a component and i've i wouldn't say i've never been good at that but um i would this song has very little space where you're like mm-hmm. listening hearing a room hearing a mm-hmm. no i'm not disparaging the recording i like it and i groove to it and i i remember playing every part and, and it resonates with me mm-hmm. very personally but at the same time i think there's something to be said for to i would have made it a little more raw i guess so the next album that i come out with and i have a backlog log of songs that have never been recorded and I have, and I would like to write some new ones. Obviously, um, the next album will probably be produced by you. Actually, you know, <laughs> unbeknownst to you, yeah. No, seriously, man. You know, no. You know? Well, it's because you're great at that. Uh, the, uh, thank you. You can have it if you really want it. You can have it if you really want. You know, people say, well, how do you start writing a song? And, you know, 90% of the songs I've written, I would say, started with just kind of, you, know, you pick up a guitar and then you strum something and then you hear the plot thicken. In other words, in your head, like, what, what did I just hear beyond this chord I just played, right? So you melodically, know? that's how you start. Well, generally, you know, but sometimes yeah. I, ha- I have uh, full compositions that manifest right. in my head. You right. know, that's happened right. six or seven times. I actually have, have several 
that are, have been fully written, you know, just driving or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, but, right. um, right. but, but that's the journey. Uh, and beyond that, I'd like to talk about something that I've never heard in music education or, or I don't hear musicians talk about this a lot, but like every time we th- have a musical thought or hear something or hear a song or hear a musician play, or it adds to something that I call the, your personal musical amalgam, which is something that we should all cultivate and do hypothetically, but, but naming it seems to give a little more power to it. So everything we listen to, everything we think of musically, everything, mm-hmm. you know, adds to this, this kind of uh, amorphous blob of, of mm-hmm. information we have in our head that, that helps us write or helps us uh, approach any given gig or any given situation. So, so, um, and as a musician in life, you want to keep building that amalgam so that you get better and better at reacting to your music, your own musical thoughts at creating at, in other words, at playing a, a set of notes and then hearing where they want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not necessarily in terms of classical harmony or jazz harmony terms, but where you want them to go. That's what mm-hmm. it's, that's really what it's about. So, um, it's all about, um, but that being said, it doesn't necessarily make you more marketable if you think in that way, but it does make you more honest. If you, mm-hmm. if you are, if you are, <sighs> relentlessly honest with your personal amalgam with everything you've listened to and experienced in, in life musically. I, I think there's something to be said for that. I, I feel like I, I have that to some degree, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I'm proud of it. That being said, I don't think I'm the most marketable musician. You know, I mean, I've no, no, you know, but, 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 but that's, that's not, that's neither here nor not, there. Yeah, right, right? right. I mean, it's like, that's not why we make music. No, we do we it. Don't, we yeah, don't make yeah. it to, to, to sell, shuffle it off yeah. as a product. We, it's an expression that we have to, we have to, first of all, we have to wrangle it to the ground. We have to make the record and wrestle with it really. Yeah. And, and 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 put the band the right band behind it mm. and find the people on your team that will uh, see it uh, fulfilled and doesn't the universe tend to do that that's a really strange thing I mean I know it did it for you and or you did it for you arguably but but no it did it for me in Chicago I, yeah I, I well we've been talking about community yeah. on, uh, you know the, you know the community of musicians that you surround yourself with um, is a huge aspect of being able to, uh, you know, have an idea, see it through, release, like execute it, release it, market it, um, and you need cats behind you that share your vision on some level. Absolutely, and you know? and man, um, the musicians that I had played with for twenty plus years had known every musical thought I had from age 24 on, you know, I mean, and they, and you know, in my band, I was the only guy without perfect pitch, you know, I mean, it was like that they were at that level, you know, Joanne was the, still is the lyric opera pianist also. And I mean, unbelievable musicians, Chris Siebold is Howard Levy's and uh, yeah, whatever. I mean, bonafide musical geniuses. So in a way it's, it's an honor and it's actually unbelievable to me, the level of musicians that I've, gotten to meet and play with but but by and large you know i mentioned some kind of famous people that i played on some recordings with uh they don't hold a candle to the musicians that are unsung largely mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. I, that i know i mean because they do it for love they don't right exactly yeah. that's the difference yeah. i think yeah. you know it's like yeah sure we can we can hire gad to play drums and, it, and, it, and i'm sure yeah. it'd be great 
and and he has a he has a feel um, and an understanding of maybe the direction that we want to go, but nothing um, can replace uh, years of experience together. Yes. So, uh, you know, I, I think we're both we, we both feel that that love and and we understand that benefit of you know ten or twenty years playing with a group of people that that ultimately know you maybe better than you, yeah. right? And yes, and you can put That's them in nicely a room. put better than you. Yep. And you can put them in a room with some demos and they get it like yeah. no charts, no nothing. I remember the first time I heard your band at uh, what's the bar right across the street. Shit. Uh, Womack. Womack. I mean, that wasn't even the full band. Right, it was a jam. Right? It was, so it was Adam and fucking. I was. Oh, like, really? Adam was. Adam there? was there. Yeah, and so actually, LG. I saw you guys twice. But the first, I remember the first time I saw, and I sat in with you guys. It was yeah, sort of a jam. But you guys were doing your thing, you know. And it was yeah, Adam, LG, and uh, Mario and Todd. Yes, yeah. And uh, I thought to myself, I, you and I's writing style are not a lot. Alike, I'm more of a, a jazz nerd. Like I tend to, you know, fall back on kind of, and I'm not a college guy either, but on more, you know, math, like bebop type harmony, mm -hmm. jazz harmony. But I was like, holy shit, this exists here. Mm. I mean, a level of perfection and uh, unity that mm. that your band that that actually, even though we, were, we, I don't think we were friends at that time, although we hung out a little bit on the patio. But um, I was like, the fact that that was there. Mm. in phoenix meaning that was part of that that added to me wanting to move here you know well i pre i mean i appreciate that obviously um but i all the praise goes to that band uh, i get it they're yeah. all they're yeah. all assassins right and also they're angels right because they <laughs> that's how i feel about my band in chicago it's like right. these people for 20 plus years actually that's i'm underestimating that for 25 years have listened to my songs and made them made them manifest you right, know i mean right 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 for, and f not for high bread i mean right. I, I hire them for everything i can i'll you know well, I, exactly you know, yeah yeah sure yeah you do what you can yeah uh tim fox on bass by the way my my bass player back in chicago which i hate to i hate to use possessive terms uh with the musicians but like whatever you know we have this thing where we also play a lot of weddings and a lot of i would call them for a lot of trio gigs or duo gigs back in chicago and we have this thing where we will literally be playing a song and then both of us i'll be on guitar singing mm -hmm. and he'll be on bass literally play the exact the same, same fill yeah, exact yeah, yeah. same fill yeah. and it happens regularly for yeah. us you know and yeah. it's just like yeah you know so it's almost like it's beyond music or it, we're, yeah. we're on the same thought thread. Yes, you know, which yeah. which is only achieved with time spent, right? Yes, Th there's no amount of, and it's also inexplicable, right? And you don't want to practice it. You, you can't. Know, why would you? You know, why would you do that? Uh, love you, West John. I love you too. Thank man. you, man. Yeah. Appreciate you. Thanks for doing round two here. <laughs> do I have to leave? <laughs> no. Yay. Do you have any cheese? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. What? <laughs> Why do you want my cheese? What's this fucking artichoke toast you're serving? Oh, bullshit. It's, it's terrible. What is this the best Western? <laughs> what is this, Applebee's? <laughs> God damn it. Blooming onion. <laughs> That's not Applebee's.